Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the library that we love. From the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel. Before long, King David made himself at home and God gave him peace from all his enemies. Then one day the king said to Nathan the prophet, look at this. Here I am, comfortable in a luxurious house of cedar, and the chest of God sits in a plain tent. Nathan told the king, whatever is on your heart, go and do it. God is with you. But that same night, God spoke to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this message is from the eternal. Are you the person who will build a house for me to live in? I've not lived in a house since I brought my people Israel up from Egypt but have moved around all this time with nothing but a tent. In all my travels with Israel, did I ever say to any of the leaders who shepherded Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? I took you from the pasture, tagging along after sheep, and made you prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you journeyed and have given you victory over your enemies, and I will make you highly respected with a name as great as any who live on earth. And I will select a place for my people Israel and plant them firmly in that place, a land they can call their own, a land of peace. Evildoers would not bother them anymore as they did during the days when I set judges over my people Israel. Finally, I will give you rest from fighting your enemies. More importantly, I, the eternal, will build you a house. This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There is a wise teacher in my life who occasionally shares bits of wisdom by telling stories about the family pets. These pets include a white mutt dog aptly named White Dog and an assortment of illogical cats who are almost always doing something ridiculous. While the stories my teacher tells about the family pets always make me laugh, they're also clearly intended to be an invitation for me to consider my own illogical and ridiculous behavior. Their stories, with a few tweaks here and there, sound an awful lot like my stories. For instance, one of the cats dedicated itself to bringing a dead lizard to the back porch at least once a week. Now, in and of itself, a cat killing a lizard is not illogical or ridiculous. Cats are carnivores, after all, and if we give them the opportunity to get outside and hunt, They're going to make some kills. What was weird about this lizard hunt was that the cat wouldn't bring the lizards to the porch to eat or enjoy. Instead, the cat brought the lizards to the porch to present them with great pride to my teacher. This cat seemed to think that she needed to earn favor or pay homage in some way, and she did that by killing a lizard, bringing it to the back porch, and laying it on the doormat as an offering. This happened over and over again as if it was something that was required or something my teacher expected or wanted, at the very least something he would appreciate. As you can probably imagine, my teacher did not appreciate it. It was not what he wanted at all. The inevitable and undesirable conclusion of this dutiful exchange each week was that he had to clean up and dispose of a dead lizard that he never wanted in the first place. Not to mention the impact this ritual was having on the lizards. (laughs) Lizards were losing their lives in this unnecessary and unwanted ritual. Now, while this all may be 
the circle of life, natural on the level of cats and lizards. I'm not so sure this behavior is natural when I'm the one laying dead lizards on doormats. The thing is, I can see myself in this cat. I've proudly delivered unrequested and unwanted gifts. I may have occasionally determined that a relationship needed something from me that it did not need at all. I'm sure that my wife, my kids, and my family could offer a long list of the times where I completely misunderstood what our relationships needed, completely missed the mark, and proudly presented them with dead lizards, gifts that they neither expected nor wanted. And it's not just the people in my life. The story we find in the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel of King David and the prophet Nathan entering into a temple building project reminds me that I am fully capable of offering dead lizards in my relationship with God too. As this scene in King David's story opens up, we're told that for the first time in a long time, all is quiet on the Western Front. The battles for the moment are over and King David and the Israelites are experiencing a time of peace and rest. In fact, they've enjoyed so much downtime that David has a luxurious house of cedar as his home. Now, quick side note for my allergy-prone sisters and brothers, a house built of cedar was simply a sign of ancient Near Eastern luxury. What may sound like a Benadryl nightmare to us was actually just an ancient description of a really nice house. So as David rests in his luxurious cedar palace, it occurs to him that he is enjoying this nice, seemingly permanent dwelling while the chest of God, or Ark of the Covenant, lives in a tent. David determines that he needs to do something about that inequity and summons the prophet Nathan to seek approval to build a temple for God. You know, it's very easy to read through a sentence or two in a story like this and overlook the amount of time that's passing. In the opening sentences of this story, enough time has passed for the Israelites to experience so much peace and downtime that they've had the time to build a luxurious palace for their king. That's not an overnight endeavor. That takes time. If we read between the lines of this story, we notice that it's not until David is resting comfortably in his own palace that it occurs to him that the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. The Ark has always been in a tent. It was in a tent during the entire construction of David's palace. It's only after David has completed and moved into his luxurious palace that he turns his attention to the difference between his dwelling place and the dwelling place of the Ark of the Covenant. And as Dr. Victor Hamilton, professor emeritus of the Hebrew Bible at Asbury Theological Seminary writes, even then, David determines the only way to level the playing field is to build a palace for God. But David actually has two choices if he's interested in equalization. Since David lives in a house and the ark is in a tent, David could put his house on the market and move into a tent. But kings, upwardly mobile persons that they are, rarely downsize. In other words, why should David follow God and live in a tent when he can make God follow him and live in a palace of cedar? But even if we move past David overlooking the option he has to downgrade, it's still worth noting that when David summons the prophet Nathan for approval of his temple building project, 
He gets it. Nathan's all in. He tells David that God is with him and he should do whatever is on his heart. That may seem like a surprising endorsement, but we all know that preachers tend to get excited about church construction, especially when the richest person in town offers to bankroll the project. As Professor Hamilton points out, Nathan was not the first, nor will he be the last, to assume that how and what they feel and think is what God feels and thinks. The truth is, building a temple for God wasn't even a new idea. David and Nathan didn't come up with it on their own. That idea had been around for as long as humans had been wrestling with the divine. The ancient Near Eastern world, which preceded and included these Israelites, was full of kings building temples for gods. In a series of ancient Sumerian stories, we can read about King Enmerkar and his adversary, the Lord of Arata, as they built dueling temples to the goddess Inanna over a thousand years before the time of King David. These two kings were competing for the favor of the gods, trying to make a name for themselves. In fact, their ancient account even includes a story of Enmerkar wanting to enslave the people of Arata in order to build a temple for another god named Inki, who, depending on the translation, either possessed the power to unite humanity in one language or disrupt it into many different languages. Now, if we're familiar with the book of Genesis, a story about a building project and a God who has the power to unite or disrupt language, the language of humanity might sound familiar. The Tower of Babel, yet another biblical building project undertaken by people striving to earn favor and make a name for themselves. The people that wrote and compiled the book of Genesis were familiar with the stories of Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata. They listened to them for generations as they were handed down by their neighbors and by the Assyrian and Babylonian kings that would exile and enslave the Israelites in their own building projects. Ultimately, the biblical writers retold these stories They rejected certain parts, to be sure, but they nevertheless incorporated them and modified them to tell the story of their faith and their God. But even with their modifications, one thing that remained in these people was the notion that these building projects were of cosmic and eternal importance. So when David finally wakes up from resting in his palace and determines to build a temple for God, he's joining a long line of monarchs and warriors before him. One could even argue that he's doing what the scripture commands. These instructions of Deuteronomy 12 echo in the story of David's building project. Verses 10 and 11 of Deuteronomy 12 state, you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land God is giving you as an inheritance and God will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then bring everything I command you to the place the eternal will choose as a sanctuary. In 2 Samuel 7, David has settled in the land God has given as an inheritance and is living in safety and rest from all his enemies. Building a temple is not only the logical thing to do, it's scriptural. Isn't this what a relationship with the divine requires? Isn't this what kings are supposed to do, what's expected? I mean, this is as natural as a cat killing a lizard. 
from Inmakar to Babel to Deuteronomy, this is the way it's always been done. And even if you disagree with tradition, we're told that building this temple is what's on David's heart. How are we supposed to disagree or argue with what's on someone's heart? The prophet Nathan doesn't. He sanctions the building campaign and tells David that God is with him. There's no way this could be wrong. Except it is. In the quiet of night, away from the triumph of the building campaign, Nathan receives a message from God, a message that he's to deliver to King David. And this message is not ambiguous. God says, are you the person who will build a house for me to live in? This message thoroughly rejects the idea that God wants or needs David to build anything, saying, I have not lived in a house since I brought my people Israel up from Egypt, but have moved around all this time in nothing but a tent. This message is the longest message God has given since speaking to Moses. In all my travels with Israel, did I ever say to any of the leaders who shepherded Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? The length and strength of this message seem to indicate that David's building campaign struck a nerve. I took you from the pasture, tagging along after sheep, and made you prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you journeyed and have given you victory over your enemies. And this message makes it crystal clear that if anything needs to be built in this relationship, this God will build it. I will make a name for you. I will select a place for my people. I will give you rest. I, the eternal, will build you a house. It's as if this message is speaking to a larger and more pervasive issue than literal kings building literal temples, as if this is about something more universal, something with which we all wrestle. Why do we build temples for God? What really lies hidden beneath the surface of our righteous intentions? Why do I kill lizards and leave them on the back porch? Just like the cat, the first thing that comes to mind is to earn favor. From a strictly transactional point of view, we build temples to please God. In the ancient Near East, you built your God or gods a house so they would like you and be kind to you. So they would bless you and your people with protection and provision. Simply put, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. A fair exchange with the divine. After all, to be an effective king or queen, you needed to have the God or gods on your side. Which points to another reason that we build temples. Building temples gives us a tangible representation that the God or gods are on our side. What better way to prove that the divine is with us than to build a temple and keep God there? As theologian Walter Brueggemann states, the temple removes the danger and possibility that God might depart. Once more, a free-range God is a dangerous God. There's no telling what kind of trouble a wild and homeless God will stir up. But if we can contain the God, somehow put the God, put the divine in a box, in a room, behind a curtain, in a sanctuary, in a temple. Now we have something we can control. 
That kind of velvet ropes God validates our credibility. It gives us power. We must be chosen because we control the house where God lives. While we may wish that our reasons for temple building ended there, the truth is our desire to control God points to a third, even more sinister motivation, manipulating and controlling people. If we can build the temple that contains the God, we will inevitably use the God we control to control people. We'll build systems and dogma that control access, doctrines that reward, punish, and govern, and appointed experts to manage, manipulate, and sustain the institution. Earn the God's favor, contain the God, control the people. The good news is King David and the prophet Nathan apparently got the message. Unlike Enmerkar and the people of Babel and all the building campaigns before them, they did not build the temple. But the honeymoon didn't last long. The temple building tension remained within us. David's son Solomon became king, and you better believe he got that temple built. In so doing, he even enslaved people to complete his building project. Can you feel that? That should sting a bit. The king of the Israelites, those who were delivered from Egypt, another empire that used slaves to build temples to gods, enslaves people to build a temple to the slave-freeing God of Israel. Friends, that is tragic temple building, and it should break our hearts. Yet we tend to look past Solomon's transgressions and even hold him up as an example of wisdom. Both 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles offer accounts of the dedications of Solomon's temple and quote the king as praying, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? The cosmos itself cannot contain you, much less this temple that I have built. We could understand that to be a moment of clarity, albeit much too late as the temple has already been built by slaves. But I would submit to you another possibility. Rather than a moment of wisdom and clarity about the nature of God, perhaps Solomon had a moment of clarity about the nature of politics. What if Solomon recognized that sometimes controlling the people requires a little sidestep, a humble brag, a subtle nod to humility and piety? The God who cannot be contained by the cosmos dwells in this puny house that I've built? Me? Your humble king? I did that? Wow, that's amazing. All right, everybody back to work, and uh, can y'all send someone over to my palace? I got a bunch of dead lizards on my back porch. Earn the God's favor, contain the God, control the people. Friends, we're not passively related to the temples we build. The control that temple building seems to offer us gets inside of us. We get attached to our temples, and once they're built, there's not much we won't do to keep them up. 
Theologian and scholar Alexander John Shia wrote, each of us has beliefs, aspects of our lives we regard as fundamental on which we rely for stability. We think and we hope that these temples will never change. Sometimes our temples are inherited, easily becoming family traditions. Sometimes we build them, we count on them, no matter what they are, we consider them central, solid, and sacred. We yearn to make them secure and expend great effort in attempts to make them so. In the seventh chapter of the biblical book of Acts, Stephen, an early leader among the first century Jesus followers, is accused of heresy and dragged before the council on charges of defaming the temple in Jerusalem. His accusers state, this man says things against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed to us. Stephen responds to these accusations with an epic testimony of the story of God. He begins with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, travels through the exodus with Moses and the Israelites, traces the entrance into the promised land, details the rise of King David, and lands his testimony on Solomon's temple with these words. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? By the time Stephen finishes his testimony, the council is so enraged, they drag him out of the city and stone him to death. We are not passively related to the temples we build. Our whole lives get caught up in them. We convince ourselves that it's who we are or who we're supposed to be. We believe the lie that our identity somehow exists in what we can do for God. And if a few lizards have to die, then so be it. But here's the thing. The inherited interpretation and assigned meanings we are handed sometimes lose the plot line and end up warping the stories that we tell ourselves. We end up telling ourselves that we have to earn God's favor when the truth is we're born into it. We believe the lie that the source of all things could be contained by our temples and give our lives to defending divinely vacant structures. tenantless temples. We exhaust ourselves in the meaningless and loveless pursuit of controlling others. We can't even control ourselves. Like our forebears before us, from Enmerkar to Solomon to the murderous council of Acts 7, we become so invested in our temples and building projects that we will destroy lives, even our own, to preserve them. Eric Hoffer, the migratory worker, longshoreman, and self-taught philosopher who eventually received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, once wrote, every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. I hope and pray that he's right. 
and that the worst thing the temples I have built become is a racket. Truth is, I fear that they're capable of becoming much worse. Perhaps that's why we have these stories. Perhaps the reason that King David's short-lived building campaign has been preserved and passed down to us is to direct us away from temple building, away from trying to earn God's favor, contain the creator, and control others. Writing to its friends in Corinth, the apostle Paul says, my brothers and sisters, you realize, don't you, that you are the temple of God and God is present in you. God's temple is sacred. And remember, you are the temple. The God of all things never asked for a building project. The eternal has a dwelling place. The source of the cosmos dwells in us, within you and me and our neighbors and our enemies. It's the very breath in our lungs, the whisper on our lips, and it's the still small voice that echoes in the words of every prophet, the tears of all people, and the groans of creation. We don't have to earn God's favor. We have it. We're not called to contain God. The free and wild God is with us and for us all of us. And God does not ask nor expect us to control people. Instead, we're called to rest, listen, and love. May we all surrender our building projects, abandon our temples, and be changed by that love. Who knows? We may even save a few lizards in the process.